Our sermon text this morning is Isaiah 61. Here now, this is God's holy word. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. You shall be named the priest of Yahweh, they shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. And instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let us give thanks together. Almighty Father in heaven, we praise you for this passage. We praise you for this season where we get to reflect carefully and deeply upon the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We ask this morning that you would drive out of our hearts all anxieties, all distractions. Give us clear minds and clear hearts as we think about these things. Help me to preach your word faithfully. Help my words to be clear and encouraging. Pray all this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Amen. The best stories always have a moment where everything appears to be lost where the great hope or the great goal of the story appears to have fallen away. It's unattainable. And for some reason, the English are very good at this. So Jane Austen is excellent at this. So you get, you're reading through the story or watching the movie, if you're lazy like me, and you're reading through the, watching the movie, and the Bennett family is coming to ruins. They have a terrible daughter, a silly, frivolous daughter, who has run off with a wicked man. Their reputation their finances, everything appears to be ruined. And then in comes Mr. Darcy. And behind the scenes, he kind of fixes things up. He makes things right. He forces things to go the way they're supposed to go. And then, of course, as you get further along in the story, Elizabeth and Darcy meet up as well. And the great hope that you have at the beginning of the story that they will actually get together happens. They actually do get together. There's a great reversal, a great change. And, of course, the end of the story, end of the story is joyful and glorious. Sense and Sensibility has the same thing. Eleanor Dashwood has her hopes set on Edward. Another story. Again, I haven't read this book, but I have watched the movie. <laughs> Eleanor has her, has her hopes set on Edward, and she finds out, or she thinks she finds out, that Edward has married another woman. So Edward comes to visit, comes to talk, and she offers congratulations to him, and he says, he basically says, for what? I'm not married. And then she starts crying, but she realizes he's there for her. And she's so delighted in all these fears and all the hopes that have been lost are now renewed and back again. And Dickens does this really well, too. If you read Dickens' stories, they're huge. What Dickens? Dickens got paid by the word. I think that's what happened there. But Dickens' books are huge. And the same thing, though, you got all these, these rivers coming together, and all looks lost, and there's desolation, and there's debt, and there's family troubles, all this, and Dickens brings it all together, and at the end, there's a joyful, happy ending for your main characters, as a general rule, a joyful, happy ending, happy ending. These are Christian stories, because the Christian story has a happy ending. We live in a world where everyone wants to have these dark, foreboding endings, these questionable endings, what really happened. You can't have them riding off in the sunset after a wedding. You can't have that anymore. It's got to be dark and despairing. Okay? That's not a Christian story. The Christian story is that Jesus came 
and that he rescued us and that he delivered us. And when things were darkest, he came and saved us. The Christian story is the greatest reversal of fortune you can ever read, you can ever have. Okay? And not just with Jesus, but all throughout the scriptures, we get this. Abraham is an idol worshiper with a barren wife. And what happens to Abraham? He becomes the father of many nations. He becomes the worshiper of Yahweh. We become Abraham's children. And Abraham's wife was barren. That's how it turns around. Joseph stuck in prison. Ruth and Naomi returning, barren and poor, and just happening to go to Boaz's field. And he just happens to be a relative and so on. It all just happens that way. No, it doesn't just happen that way. God is directing it. God loves to take those moments, those moments where everything looks lost and flip them on their head and turn them on their head and say, no, then we're going to take this mourning and take this despair and we're turning it into joy and we're going to turn it into gladness. That is what our chapter is about. Isaiah 61 is about this great reversal, this great change that happened because of Jesus, because of Jesus coming. And of course, the whole Christmas season, that's what we reflect on. All right, so Isaiah is divided up into two main sections. Chapters 1 through 39 are more judgment, primarily judgment in chapters 1 through 39. There is some salvation in there. There is some redemption in there, but mainly judgment on Israel for her sins, judgment on Israel for her idol worship. And then chapters 40 through 66 move to redemption. And chapter 40 begins with comfort, comfort, yes, Comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. So it begins with this comfort. And really all of the rest of the book, 40 through 66, is primarily about this comfort, this restoration, this resurrection, and this redemption that God brings to the nation of Israel. She's about to go into exile. She's about to be trodden underfoot by the nations. And Israelites need this comfort, this hope that that is not the end of the story. That the exile in Babylon is not the last chapter. That there's more to come. And Isaiah 40 through 66, lay that out. Give us more of that. All right. So Isaiah 60, the chapter right before our chapter, is all about the restoration of the city of God. Okay. It says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But Yahweh will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. So it's talking about the city of God and the glory of the city of God and God dwelling in there. And then it ends the same way. Chapter 60 ends the exact same way. The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you. But Yahweh will be to you an everlasting Okay, so this city of God is restored. It's lifted back up. And the question in the chapter 60 is, how does this happen? What is the mechanism by which the Lord restores the fortunes of Israel? What is the method, the tool he uses to restore the fortunes of Israel? And the answer, of course, is Jesus. The answer is the Messiah. And that's what 61 is about. 61 is about the Messiah coming, rescuing us, delivering us, and all the blessings that flow from that particular salvation. And so 61 begins with the Trinity. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. Spirit of the Lord, Yahweh the Father, and the anointed one, Jesus. So this salvation begins with the Trinity. And Jesus quotes this passage in Luke chapter 4. He sits down and he goes to the temple in Luke chapter 4, and he picks up the scroll for Isaiah, opens it up. Now picture yourself sitting there. He opens it up, reads this passage, sets it back down, and he says, Today, this has been fulfilled. Today, this has been fulfilled. Now, imagine you're sitting there. You've been waiting on the Messiah. You've been waiting on this Jesus, the Savior to come. 
And this guy comes in, opens it up and says, I am that guy. Okay? I am that guy. And they try to kill him like 20 verses later, okay? Not very excited about Jesus being the guy. But it's clearly Jesus saying, this happened with my coming. I am the spirit-anointed Savior. I am the spirit-anointed Messiah. And so and what Jesus is saying there, what Isaiah is saying, is everything hinges on Jesus. Jesus is the hinge that turns it. He's the fulcrum in the story. He's the one that moves it where it needs to go. Jesus is the answer to how are we going to be resurrected and how are we going to be delivered. Okay? So Jesus comes, this spirit-anointed Messiah comes and proclaims, proclaims good tidings. He preaches good news. He proclaims liberty to, to the captives. He proclaims the acceptable year of the Lord. Sometimes you, hope people, you will hear people say, preach Jesus, and if necessary, use words. Okay? That's terrible advice. That's, t- that's awful advice. The only way you get Jesus is by preaching Jesus. Okay? That's how people get Jesus. Jesus preached Jesus. Everybody who loves the Lord preaches Jesus. The gospel comes through the proclamation of the word. And yes, your life matters and your character matters and how you look matters. It does matter. But the gospel comes primarily through the proclamation of the word. This is how Jesus did it. This is how Paul did it. And that's how we're supposed to do it. So proclaiming God's word and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ is part of our task. A little bit of a tangent, but part of our task. Okay. So what is this great salvation that Jesus is bringing? What does it look like? Well, the language here is the language of freedom. Language is the language of rescue, okay? Proclaim liberty, open the prison, okay? Set people free. The language of being set free, of healing in chapter one, sent me to heal. So the Bible uses a lot of different language when it comes to our salvation. There's not one specific, you know, um, picture that it paints. There's numerous different pictures. Here the picture is, we are in prison. We're bound. We're slaves. Think of Egypt. We are in Egypt. And instead of Moses leading Israel out of Egypt, Jesus comes into Egypt, grabs us, and takes us out. That's what's going on. He comes in to rescue, comes in to set us free. We are set free in Christ, free from sin, the guilt, and the power of sin. We're no longer guilty, and we do not have to succumb to sin's temptation. Set free from the, sin, the fear of death. Death no longer has any hold on us. Death no longer has any sting. And we're set free from Satan. And set free, free from Satan and our enemy. So there's this freedom. The picture here is one of freedom. The sun sets us free. And we think a lot about freedom. People talk about freedom, especially conservatives talk a lot about freedom. But there is no genuine freedom outside of Jesus. Okay? Whatever freedom you're talking about, there is none outside of Christ. Christ is the one that sets us free. John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Okay, so Jesus came to set us free, free from sin, free from Satan, free from death. And a society that rejects Jesus is a society that is not free. And this is why every time you turn around, there are more laws, there are more rules, there are more regulations everywhere you go because we are enslaved. We are a society that is enslaved. Okay? Where Jesus is, there is freedom. Where Jesus is not, there is slavery. All right? So the picture that Isaiah paints for us is him coming and rescuing us and delivering us. All right? So the picture really here is not so much about us receiving or us doing that. It's more about what Jesus comes and does. In the middle of this, you have this reference to vengeance. I want to just talk about this for just a minute. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, that's a reference to the year of Jubilee, by the way. The year of Jubilee was every 50 years, 
all the debts were forgiven. The land was restored. The slaves were set free. Okay, the year of Jubilee was a year of freedom. Everything went back to the way it was supposed to be. Jesus came to proclaim the year of Jubilee, to set things back the way they were supposed to be, okay? To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Our passage is primarily about salvation, but with salvation, wrath always accompanies salvation. You cannot have the salvation of God's people without also the vengeance, the wrath. And we see this in the ministry of Jesus. Pastor Garner's been going through Matthew. How many times has this come up in the parables? Well, they have a choice here. And how do the parables end? Well, he cast them in everlasting fire or he handed them over to the torturers. Okay? So salvation comes in Christ, yes, but it's also a day of vengeance. For those who do not believe, for those who do not trust, it is not a good day. It is a terrible day, a terrifying day. There's always vengeance with salvation. And some people like to have Jesus, one part of Jesus, but not the other part of Jesus. And it doesn't work that way. You can't have the Jesus of love. You can have the Jesus, the saving Jesus, without also having the Jesus who pours out his wrath on his enemies. Without also having the Jesus, where it says in Revelation, they flee from his face. They flee from the wrath of the Lamb. Okay, so those two things go together. And it's not the emphasis of the passage, but it is there. I think Isaiah just wants to remind us that the day of of, of salvation for us is the day of vengeance for others. Another great passage on this, I'm not going to read it, but it's 2 Thessalonians 1, where it talks about redemption and judgment at the same time. Okay, so there's this judgment that comes with this great salvation. So who is this that is being saved? Who does this salvation come to? In a sense, it's indiscriminate. It comes to all men. Isaiah 55 says, if you're thirsty, come drink water without cost. Okay, it comes to all men. It's available to all men. But who are those who are actually saved? And the answer is those who mourn, those who are in a spirit of heaviness, those who are brokenhearted, those who have ashes. In other words, the only ones who are delivered by Jesus are the ones who know they need to be delivered by Jesus, the ones who know they are sinners. The ones who are rescued by Christ are the ones who mourn for their sins. There's a song that, I, listen, I'll let my kids listen to some terrible music sometimes. So there's a song, <laughs> The Spirit in the Sky. Some of you older folks might remember the song, Spirit in the Sky. There's a line in that song where it says, I've never sinned, I've never been a sinner, I've got a friend in Jesus. Okay? And my kids always laugh at that. And one day we were driving the car and like, Dad, why would he need Jesus if he's never been a sinner? Why would he need Jesus if he's never sinned? And the answer is you don't need Jesus if you've never sinned. If you don't recognize your sin, there's no reason to flee to Jesus. There's no reason to come to the one who comforts. There's no reason to come to the one who consoles us. Comfort, consolation, beauty for ashes, joy for mourning only come to those who recognize their sin, hate their sin, and flee to Jesus. Now, what I'm not encouraging here is wallowing in your sin. Okay? We don't want to go that We're not going that route. We're just laying our sin and just roll over and over in it and say how terrible a human being we are. That's not what we're doing. What we're doing is saying we are sinners. We recognize our need for Jesus, and we recognize the need for our sin to be taken care of. If you don't do that, then you're not going to grow, even as a Christian. You know, obviously, if you're a pagan and you don't recognize your need for sin, need for Jesus, you're not going to convert to Christ. But even in your Christian life, even once you become a Christian, you're not going to grow if you don't weed out sin, if you don't look honestly at what you're doing, if you're not able to say, you know what, I'm wrong there. I'm not as patient as I should be. I wasn't as kind as I should be. I was lazy there. You don't grow as a Christian if you don't mourn over your sin. 
Again, the answer is not to wallow in it, but the answer is to mourn over it and to turn from it. These are the ones that get comfort and consolation. Those are the ones that Jesus comes to. We live in a society where everyone knows they're guilty. Everybody knows this. I think Romans 1 teaches that very clearly. We know we're guilty. People know they're guilty, but they refuse to acknowledge it. They won't acknowledge it or look at it straight on, and so they don't know how to deal with it. They won't honestly deal with it. We live in a, in a society full of, with blood on our hands, full of guilty people who don't know how to deal with their guilt, don't know how to deal with their sin. Uh, just one illustration, we can think of many, you can probably think of some yourself, but it, statistics say that 70, 17 to 22% of women are on antidepressants. Okay? Um, maybe it's lower than that, maybe a little higher than that. I don't know what they, but that's a lot. That's a good bit, okay? And some of that's probably legitimate. Some of that probably is necessary, but some of it, I can almost guarantee you, is linked to not dealing with guilt, not dealing with sin. How many psychological issues do we have in our nation today, in our society today, that are due to people not dealing with their sin? Their sin just, it, it has consequences. When you sin, it doesn't go away. It just sits there. It just sits there and rots like you're sticking something in your backpack and forgetting about it for six months and going back. It's still there and it's thinking everything up. That's what sin does. So for us, my encouragement to you with this particular section of the text is flee to Christ for mercy. Don't hide your sin. Don't pretend like it doesn't exist. Christ is merciful. He wants you to bring that to him. He wants to give you comfort. He wants to give you consolation. He's a lot more apt willing to forgive, then you, we are willing to run to him. So don't be foolish and hide your sin. Don't be foolish and just pretend like it doesn't exist. Deal with it, bring it to Jesus, and take care of it. That's, what, that's the ones. Those are the people that get comfort. Those are the people that get consolation. And the Sermon on the Mount begins the same way, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 1 of our passage says to preach good tidings to the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So Jesus tells us if we mourn over our sin, then we will be comforted. All right? So this is the work that Jesus came to do. Don't be foolish and hide your sin. Mourn over it instead. Okay, so this great salvation happens. Jesus comes. He proclaims it. He does the work on the cross, which isn't mentioned here so much, but it's mentioned back in Isaiah 53. He does his work on the cross. He turns, he flips the script. He reverses everything. And we become trees of righteousness. At the end of verse 3, we may be called trees of righteousness. It's kind of an echo of Psalm 1, you know, planted by the rivers of water. Where we meditate on God's law. We're planted by the rivers of water. We become trees of righteousness that God may be glorified. That's the effect of this great salvation. We are planted. We are strong. And God is glorified. All right. So there's, there's a flow here. The spirit anointed Messiah comes proclaims liberty to the captives, rescues us, pulls us out of prison, gives us joy instead of mourning, and then he plants us in his land like a vineyard. He plants us, and we glorify him in that. He is glorified through that. Then what happens? Okay, then what's the next flow? The next thing is we, the resurrected people of God, the rescued people of God, go out and begin to resurrect the world around us. We begin to rebuild the world around us. Verse 4, and they shall, re, they shall rebuild the old ruins, they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. It's an odd thing when a Christian will argue that the salvation that we have has no impact on society out there. You'll hear people say the gospel is not about politics, 
It's not about law. It's not about journalism. It's not about economics. It's not about our communities. The gospel is primarily about us being saved. How can that even happen? How can spirit-filled people trusting in the Messiah not have an impact on what's going on out there? How can we not make a dent in the evil in the world? And the answer is it's impossible. And that's what the picture here is. We, the spirit-filled Messiah, fills us with his spirit. We go out and we rebuild and we raise up and we repair. That's what we go to do. We rescue the world around us. Our salvation doesn't just change us, us, it changes the world. It changes your homes. It changes your communities. It changes your schools. It changes all the different things we have in our life. And that's how it works. We are the restorers. We're the ones that lift those things up. Okay, so flows out. And the primary task we have, skipping down just one verse to verse six, the primary part of our work is worship. But you shall be named the priest of Yahweh. They shall be called, they shall call you the servants of our God. And servants of our God is a phrase, again, for priests in the temple. So both of these are references to priests. At the center of our priestly work, at the center of our work for the Lord is worship. That is at the center of it. So if you want to think about it, God fills us with his spirit. The Messiah comes, delivers us, rescues us, fills us with his spirit. We come in here and worship the Lord, and then we go out there and we repair and we rebuild and we restore. That's what we do. That's kind of the flow of the passage about what happens and how it works. So yes, your salvation, the salvation that Christ brought, is not limited to your soul. It's not limited to your heart. If it's not affecting your homes, if it's not affecting your work, place, if it's not affecting where you're at, then there's something off. The gospel should be reflected in the way we live in our rebuilding and raising up and repairing. So we flow out in the world and rebuild. But what's interesting in the passage is the Gentiles flow back into the church. Okay? This is a theme throughout scripture is that when God is restoring his people, when God is spreading his people out through the, the world, the Gentiles give to the church. The nations give to the people of God. Okay, we see this Abraham twice Abraham is enriched by kings as he wanders throughout the land of Canaan. Twice they give him stuff. Think of Israel coming out of Egypt. All this gold that they were given, they used to build the tabernacle. When Israel returns to the land after the exile, they're given safe passage from Cyrus and they're given um, ability to cut trees and use resources and things like that. Okay, so here in our passage it says, Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and they shall glory, and in their glory you shall boast. Okay? So one sign that God is restoring the fortunes of his people is that the nations begin to feed the house of God. Okay? They begin to feed it, pour into it. Obviously, people is one of those resources, but also stuff. Okay? Here's one example, maybe from the life of Mary and Joseph, I wouldn't go to the mat over this, but I think it's a very interesting scenario and certain, certainly possible. But Mary and Joseph were more than likely poor. They, when they went to present Jesus in the temple, they gave two turtle doves, not a lamb, which a lamb was, was something a more wealthy person would have. They, had two, they gave two turtle doves, which seemed to indicate they are poor. But later, they take a ship or take a trip to Egypt that would have been expensive. It wasn't easy to get from Israel to Egypt, it would have cost money. So how did they get money to flee from Pharaoh to go hide, or not Pharaoh, flee from Herod to go hide in Egypt? How did they get money to do that? Well, I think the most likely answer is the wise men. The money the wise men brought, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh was used by Mary and Joseph to flee 
from Herod and be saved from a wicked man. So this is kind of the picture that's painted here and painted throughout Isaiah is that the resources of the nations, the resources of the Gentiles are used to build up and strengthen the church. Okay? That's how it's supposed to work. Revelation 21 ends with, or Revelation 21, 24 says, the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into the new Jerusalem. Okay? So we know there's a restoration happening when the nations are coming into the house of God and bringing their resources into the house of God. You can read more of that in, verse, in chapter 60. 60 talks a lot about the Gentiles coming in to uh, be part of the people of God and bringing their resources in. So we got this flow here. The Spirit, uh, the Messiah comes, brings salvation, raises us up, changes our fortunes, plants us. We go out, we rebuild. The nations bring their resources into the house of God, their riches. We eat the riches of the Gentiles. That's what the passage says. And then the Lord provides for continuity. He provides for the future of the people of God by covenant succession. Okay, and that's verses 8 and 9. So let's read those. For I, Yahweh, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. Okay, so the Lord provides a way for his kingdom to continue. And succession can be a tricky business. If you're a business owner, you know this, trying to find somebody to take over your business as you're getting ready to, to sell it off or getting ready to be done with it. Coaches, often there's a hard time with coaches. You have a good coach for a long, long time, and then he retires, who's next? And it can be bad news. You can often have bad coaches. You see some teams right now that have bad coaches. They just keep going through coach after coach, and it doesn't help. All right. And as Christians, we want to think about what's going to happen with the, our part of the kingdom of God when we die, when we pass out of this world, what is going to happen? And the answer is the Lord has provided us promises to our children that he will keep them, he will sustain them, he will guard them, he will raise them up, he will direct the work in truth. Okay? So we have to labor, I'm not saying we're lazy, but the work is the Lord. He is the one that keeps them. He's the one that keeps it going the way it's supposed to go. So over the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years, there's been a huge um, increase in people talking about covenant succession. And this is great. This is just the idea that, you know, we should expect Christian parents to raise Christian children. Just that basic idea. Um, we treat them like Christians. We raise them up as Christians. We treat them like disciples. Okay? There's been a huge upsurge in that. And that's really good. I think for a long time, the church even... The Presbyterian churches, which should have known better, lost that idea. So that's come back. But we want to remember when God is faithful, when our children are raised up and their children are faithful, it is primarily a work of the Lord. Okay? It's not primarily our work. Now, do we labor? Yes. But we are means to an end. It's primarily a work of the Lord. And kind of compare it to preaching. When we, we prepare, we come up here, we preach, we give you guys the word. But in the end... The one who bears fruit in that is not me or Pastor Garner. The one who bears fruit in that is the Spirit. The Spirit is the one that applies it. And the same thing in the life of your children. Here, the emphasis is not so much on you raising your children in the Lord. The emphasis is on the Lord doing a good work in the life of your children. I will direct their truth, their work in truth. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. When the nations see the posterity, they will know the Lord has blessed them. Okay. So yes, we want to labor diligently. But in the end... When we have faithful children, we say, thank you, Lord. That was a good work. Praise the Lord for the work that he did there. Okay. All right, so then chapter, verses 10 and 11 end with this 
rejoicing. This a wedding and a garden, which seems appropriate. A wedding and a garden in verse 10 and 11. I will greatly rejoice in Yahweh. My soul shall be joyful in my God. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and a bride adorns herself with jewels. For the earth brings forth its bud. For as the earth brings forth its bud. As the garden causes the things that are sown in to spring forth. So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. All right. So this is the end of the Christian story. The end of the story is a wedding and a garden. The end of the story is rejoicing. The end of the story is glorious garments. The end of the story is dancing and festivity and gladness and fruitfulness. That is the end of the story. That is always the end of the Christian story. There is no other ending. There is no other path. This isn't choose your own adventure. You know, where you get to pick which way you want to go. For the Christian, for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, it always ends there with righteousness and glory and a wedding and a garden. And that's what Christmas is about. That's part of what Christmas is about, reminding ourselves of that great and glorious truth. So the flow here is, is we are saved and redeemed by Jesus. He reverses our fortunes. He raises us up. He plants us. We go out and change the world. The world brings its glory back into the church. Her resources come back into the church. Our children are preserved. They carry on the work of the Messiah. They carry that on. And the story ends with a wedding and a garden. It ends with glory. That's where it ends. Let's just, a few truths I want to pull out of this. Just a couple things. All right. So first, over the last several decades, there's been a huge renewal in the talking about the universal dimension of Christ's work, okay? So for a long time, when people talk about Jesus saving things, saving people, they talk about Jesus saving individuals. There's no picture of Jesus saving the world. There's no universal dimension to it, okay? There's no joy to the world. There's just joy, joy, joy down in my heart, okay? You know, that's all, that's all it was. Joy, joy, joy down in my heart, not joy to the world. It wasn't cosmic. It wasn't universal, Okay? And I'm so grateful for the shift back because the Bible teaches this vast, universal glory. Everything changed when Jesus came. Everything changed. Nothing has been the same. The world shifted. Okay? Think about these guys who are trying to replace, uh, you know, B.C. and A.D. with B.C. and C. you know. And, and what the, what's the question there? The question is, well, what separates the common error from before the common error? What is it that, that separates these? Say it. What separates? It's Jesus. So even they're trying to get away and they can't get away. Jesus is the hinge that changes everything. When the gospel was first coming to England, the English were trying to decide whether they should celebrate Christmas on December 25th or not. And they just decided, yeah, we should celebrate on December 25th. Even if that isn't his birthday, it's appropriate because it's the darkest time of year. It's the darkest time of year. And that's when the Messiah came at the darkest time of year. And he shed light on the whole world and those angels and everything. Tell us the world changed. And that's how it is. I think people sometimes look back and, they, and they're like, the church is not great. It's kind of weak and those sort of things. Do you know how we started? We started in a little room in Jerusalem. And that's how we started. And now we're all over the world. The church is magnificent. Jesus has changed everything. And at Christmas, it's a great time to remember that. But never forget that he didn't just came to save the world. He came to save you. And he came to save me. And he came to save our children. Yes, there's this great universal salvation that he brought. But there's this salvation for us. He is our savior. Okay? 
He made the blind to see. We were blind. He made the lame to walk. We were lame. He made the deaf to hear. We were deaf. Christmas is such a wonderful season to remember God's works, not just his great works, but the works he's done in your life. Some of you have been through darkness, and the Lord has brought you out to the other side. He has turned your mourning into gladness. Remember those works as you go throughout this Christmas season. Yes, focus on the birth and the resurrection and the ascension. Those are great, but all of that flows into your life. He is your Savior. He's not a Savior. This isn't someone else's story. This is your story. This is my story. This is our story. We are part of this. And the Lord has rescued you from great and terrible things. Remember that during the Christmas season and rejoice. Let the Christmas season be dominated by joy and gladness because of all that God has done. Some of you are still in a dark place. Some of you are in difficult situations. The morning hasn't lifted yet. The spirit of heaviness hasn't been taken away yet. My encouragement to you is to remember that no matter what pain or grief you have in this life, you still have Jesus. And that is not a cliche. That is the truth. The greatest need you have, ever have, has been met in Christ. Everything is good in him. So yes, darkness is here. Yes, there can be pain. And sometimes it doesn't lift for a long time. But you have Jesus. He who did not spare his own son, Romans 8, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not freely give us all things? God writes the best stories. You have stories that he's written. He's writing a huge story with Jesus across the world, saving the world, redeeming us. He's writing this huge story. But you have a story too. You're part of that story. So don't forget this Christmas season, how good Jesus has been to you, how great that salvation is, not just for the world, but for you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the ways you work in our lives. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and his work upon the cross. We thank you that you have saved us and redeemed us. Some of us have gone, you've saved us from just dark, terrible, horrible circumstances and rescued us, and we're so grateful for that. Give us glad hearts during this Christmas season. Give us joyful hearts at this great salvation that you have brought in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his strong name. Amen.